Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer one more time. Lord, you've said in your word that um, you have revealed yourself to your people and many times, in many ways, that in these last days you revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God the Father. He is the perfect gift who's come down from the Father of lights, the giver of all good gifts. I pray that as we open your word, that we would see Christ the Lord, that we would love him, that we would desire him more than anything else. I pray that your spirit would convict our hearts of sin and convince our hearts that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is Lord. And we, may we not be the same because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you can open up to James chapter 1 if you're not there already. We're taking a break from our uh, typical series in Ephesians that we're going through right now. Um, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. Um, this is God's good word for us. All of God's word is good for all of life and every day and every season. And today we're, we're, we're going to hear a hard word from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So we need humility this morning to hear it, to allow the Spirit to convict our hearts, and to encourage us to not look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus. And maybe for you this morning, for the first time, look to Him and be saved. James is a book uh, it's in the very back of your Bible. You'll notice that most of your Bible is, is over here, if you're open to James. James was written by the apostle who bore that name. He's the half-brother of Jesus. 
He's the big brother to Jude, the guy who wrote the book of Jude. And James is Jewish, and he's writing this book, this letter to what he calls the uh, diaspora, the, the Jewish um, persecuted, the earliest Christians who had been scattered by the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the subsequent persecution that happened under Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. You can, you can read about that. And not surprisingly, because James is Jewish and his audience is Jewish, uh, James includes a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. And the book's emphasis on right living is, reminds us of the book of Proverbs. You can op- if you've been reading the book of Proverbs, maybe in your own quiet time, if you've read it on your own, you'll notice a lot of similar words, some similar themes. James, as far as we know, is the earliest written book in the New Testament. And it instructed the very earliest Christians scattered across the world by persecution that spiritual fruitfulness demonstrates true faith. James is a fiercely practical book. Imperatives, commands, imperatives occur occur more frequently, more densely in the book of James than anywhere in the entire New Testament. And James, while he is concerned with deepening our doctrine, he's concerned most importantly with strengthening our faith and our walk. He wants us to see that our theology, our doctrine cannot be divorced from our walk. Both of those things grow and are strengthened together. That's the way that Christ has intended it. And so James, very often, and as he will do today, opposes our tendency to pursue Jesus with a half-hearted faith. One foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Double-mindedness for James is the basic sin. Verse 1, 8 tells us that a man who prays to God while he doubts God is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And we're going to hear similar strong language like that this morning because God is after an all-in faith with his people. He doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us. Our verse begins in verse 12. So let me catch you up real quick. In verse 1, James tells us who he is. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered across Palestine. Uh, Many of these people are poor. Many of them have been persecuted, both by their own families. The earliest Christians were Jewish. And when they became Christians, they were expelled from their communities. They were expelled from their families, their synagogues, their their homes, their schools. And not only were that, but they were also persecuted by the time James writes this book. They were being persecuted by the government, by Rome. They're being persecuted from their own and persecuted from without. Everywhere there's persecution and they are down. Verses 2 through 4, appropriately, James talks about suffering, Suffering in the Christian worldview is always purposeful. God always has a purpose for Christians in suffering. And if we are steadfast in the midst of that suffering, verses 2 through 4 tells us, we, uh, that steadfastness gives way to blessing both now and in eternity, which we'll come back to. In verses 5 through 8, he says, hey, if you don't understand what you're going through, if you understand, yeah, okay, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, and you're telling me that this is a blessing, and if you don't see it, you're in good company. And James says, ask God for wisdom. Because not only is God capable of giving us anything that we need, he's generous. 
He does not give grudgingly. He's not a miser with his good gifts. He gives to everyone. And we'll come back to that as well. In verses 9 through 11, right before we get to our text this morning, we learn that Christians can rejoice when they are brought low. Because when we're brought low, God is bringing us to a place where we can receive him and be filled with him. So we come to our text this morning and we're talking about blessing in the midst of trial. God does indeed bring us trials, but never the temptations that come with those trials. Let's look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Theologians have noted how similar the book of James is to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs starts some of its major sections in the same way that this text does. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, Proverbs 3. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, Proverbs 28. Blessed is the one who listens to wisdom, Proverbs 8. The writer of the book of Proverbs is trying to apply his wisdom to our ordinary circumstances so that we can see things that we might have missed at first glance. And James is doing the same thing. He's applying spiritual wisdom to our ordinary daily circumstances and he's showing us God is at work in the midst of these. He's putting spiritual lenses over our eyes so that what God is up to can come into focus. Often when we're in the midst of our trial, our heads are down and we're focused at just what's right in front of us. And James is causing us to lift our eyes, to look up and to see that God is at work even in the midst of trial. Um, Chapter 1 follows this theme that blessing can occur in the midst of trials. And trials come, and and no one in their ordinary mind goes, oh boy, a trial. I can't wait to deal with this, right? You know, you break your arm, awesome. Uh, What else could happen? Your car overheats on the interstate, let's say going southbound on 75 at 8 a.m. Sweet. (laughs) Party time, right? You wake up on Monday morning, and half of your kids have a stomach virus. It's going to be a good day. You know, no one in their right mind finds trials enjoyable and exciting and goes, oh boy, I can't wait for more. But for Christians, there are indeed blessings to be enjoyed even in the midst of trials and promises to be laid hold of when trials lay hold of us. In verse 12, we're told that the man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed because when he has stood the test, He has a crown of life waiting for him. Now notice this crown of life is a gift. That's what he says in verse 12. This is a gift that is promised to those who love God. So there's therefore a connection between steadfastness under trial and love for God. Those things go together. And here's how. Throughout the New Testament, we find that love for Jesus is obedience to Jesus. We spent a year and a half going through John. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
keeping Jesus' commandments is the reality of our love played out in real time. For Christians, steadfastness is continuing to obey Jesus no matter what happens. So when the storms of life comes, when trials come, we keep obeying Jesus. When it's nothing but blue skies overhead, sunny days, the wind at our back, we keep following Jesus. Christian steadfastness is doing the exact same thing no matter what's going on around you. It's obeying Jesus. And the reason that we want to obey Jesus here in this text is because, again, love for Jesus is connected to obedience to Jesus. We obey him not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we want to, because we love him, because we want him. We would rather suffer with Jesus than experience comfort without him. And James is not shy to incentivize us to obey He reminds us in verse 12, look, there's a huge reward coming for you uh, just on the other side of these trials. Eternal life, a crown of life. Keep following Jesus, he's saying, because after the cross comes the crown. James is telling us to keep eternity in view. When trials bow you low, he's encouraging you to look up and to see that just on the other side is eternal life. Eternal life is indeed promised elsewhere in the scripture to those who remain steadfast, to those who obey Jesus. To the rich young ruler, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So each time we read steadfastness in James, we are talking about keeping Jesus' commandments no matter what we're going through. Christian obedience is steadfastness. Now, verse 12, what I just read to you, verse 12 is a microcosm. It's a a single example of a huge, life-altering reality for Christians. God sends us trials, and he always has a good purpose in them. Always. Always. That's what James is trying to teach us from the very beginning of the book, what our brother Ryan read just a few moments ago. You can read with me. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is doing something in our trials, Christians. God is providing an opportunity for your faith to grow and for you to produce steadfastness. For Christians, trials and the sufferings that accompany them are always purposeful. God is always doing something. My aunt is a career missionary. Let me tell you, she could teach us a thing or two about how God uses trials and suffering. Her comfort zone is that terrifying place where nothing is going right and everything is going wrong. I can remember arriving in an airport on the East Coast Uh, with her and a group of people. Uh, This was a number of years ago. In the middle of the night after a 12-hour transatlantic flight, we had spent four hours circling the airport waiting for bad weather to clear. We landed, grabbed our luggage, ran down the terminal, only to realize that we'd missed our connecting flight. It's late. We're tired. Luggage is missing. Everyone's tired. One of us is sick. We're all upset. We're all groaning. I'm so upset. I just want to puke. And in the middle of that, my aunt goes, she claps her hands and goes, oh boy, 
God's about to do something big. Is that foolishness? That's Christian maturity. Because she's read James chapter 1 and she knows God is about to do something big when trials come into our lives. That's why you can count it all joy. That's why it's a blessing to remain steadfast under trials. On the other side of there are suffering in the very least, according to verse 12, is eternal life, a crown of life, our glory, life eternity, in eternity with Jesus. But trials are hard. They are challenges. And when trials come, we very often sin. And we blame shift when we sin. James knows that. Look what he says next in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, this might seem like an odd path to turn down. We were just talking about trials, and now we're talking about temptations. Well, we're all sinners here. And we very often respond to life with sin. Right, not every day is a day at Six Flags. For us, trials are accompanied by temptation. A tire blows out on the way to an important meeting. In an unusual circumstance, you could call it a trial. And there's this almost immediate temptation to grumble, to curse every discount tire shop that's ever existed. That's not even a particularly noteworthy trial. What happens when you lose your job? when you lose your own health, when your spouse, when their health begins to fail? What happens when your adult child comes to you, comes home to let you know that they've left the faith? What happens when a child is taken from us because of sickness, because of death? Trials come our hearts ache, and we feel ourselves being enticed to grumble against God, to lash out at others, and to harbor bitterness in our hearts. Trials are so ubiquitously accompanied by temptation for us weak sinners to, that we conflate trials with temptations. We often think they're one and the same. And something truly insidious happens for us Christians, which James is calling out in verse 13. Because we know, we've been reading our Bibles, we know that God is sovereign. We know that he's sovereign over trials. Sometimes we can start to blame him for the way that we respond to trials. It's his fault that I'm getting angry right now. If my life was not this way, I wouldn't be angry. It's his fault that I'm giving in to lust right now. It's his fault that I am one big ball of nerves today. This is the family he gave me. James rebukes this. He doesn't give us an inch. Trials and temptations are not the same thing. God does indeed bring trials to us, but brothers and sisters, when we sin, that sin is all our own. The temptations that come with trials are ours. God sends trials to us. Yes, he does. And if he does, he always has a good purpose in them for believers. Notice James isn't letting us get away with this thinking because he's more concerned with the honor of God's name than with making us feel okay with our sin. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. 
James is showing us that God cannot be tempted with evil because that's in the very character of God to not be tempted by evil. What he's telling us is that when we blame God for the way that we respond to trials, we are in fact calling his character into question. We are assuming that he would respond the same way. Our sin is our own fault no matter what's going on. Well, let's keep reading. If we look at verse 12. We, we are the parents of our own sin. We create our own sin. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So why can God not be tempted by evil? Which verse 13 says God cannot be tempted by evil. Why is that the case? Well, it's because temptation only happens when a person is lured and when they're enticed by their own desires. God's desires are only ever holy and only ever good. They only ever lead him to act in ways that are holy and good. And you might think, well, man, God has never experienced the kind of suffering I'm going through. He's never experienced the kind of spiritual attack that I'm under. But the Son of God incarnated in the flesh, Jesus lived the life that we do. He was tempted in every way like we are, and yet he was without sin he suffered. In fact, so much so that the writer Isaiah gives us this unenviable title. He gives Jesus this unenviable title of man of sorrows, one well acquainted with grief. The desires of Jesus led him only ever to do good and to act in holiness. In fact, you can see what this sort of incarnate lifestyle looks like anytime a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us how believers filled with the Spirit respond to trials. Therefore, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In that list, you can see how each attribute is a right response to trial. God's desires only ever produce good. But on the other hand, our desires, apart from the Lord, apart from the work of the Spirit, our desires lead us to do terrible things. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit, but it also gives us another list. Now the work of the flesh, that's us, the work of the flesh is evident. Sexual immorality Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Can you see how this is a fleshly response to trials? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is never to blame for our sinful response to temptation, but we are. Look what James says next. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's this, this pattern here. There's this birth analogy. Temptations are conceived, the scripture says here, are conceived in our own hearts That's the place that they're born. And then when they 
give birth, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it brings forth death. Desire will always give birth to action unless something aborts it in vitro. Action will always grow into death unless something kills it before it murders us. Death is just growing up sin. Sin is just birth desire. And desire is just in vitro DNA from our own hearts. And James is giving us a sort of spiritual paternity test here. Did the action or thought come from your heart? Doesn't matter the circumstances. Doesn't matter who is involved. That baby is yours. Doesn't matter what circumstances are happening around us. When we sin, we carry the blame fully. The story is told, and and some of you might have heard this story before. The story is told that the Times, a newspaper in London, ran some sort of essay contest in the early 1900s. The editor would pose a question to several prominent authors and print their essays um, in their newspaper. And one of those authors was G.K. Chesterton, a a prominent writer in the early 1900s and a devout Christian. The question the editor posed was this, what's wrong with the world today? And we don't know what the other authors said, but the story goes that Chesterton responded to the editor with a single sentence essay, which I will read in its entirety for you right now. Dear Sir, what's wrong with the world today? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. When we sin, no matter what's in the world, no matter what's right around us, no matter who's involved or how convenient it would be to blame shift, we have to say the same thing. Who is at fault? I am. And brothers and sisters, while we are the parents of our own sin, the opposite is true of the Lord. While we are the parents of our own sin, God is the Father of all that is good. And I don't think it's any accident that these verses go right next to each other. The one we're about to read and the one we just read. We just read that we are fully culpable for our sin. It's a hard truth. Trials come They are challenging. Those circumstances are real. And we're told we are responsible fully for the way that we respond to them. And how does God respond to the way that we respond? Look at verse 14. Excuse me, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's an imperative. Do not be deceived, my my beloved brothers. Here comes the truth. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, be wary of your own heart here. God is only ever good. He cannot be blamed for the sin in our lives because God is the father of light. He's the father of light in a spiritual sense and yes, in a physical sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and what was his first decree? Let there be light. 
He is the Father of light. The sun, the stars, every light has its origin in God. And young children who are scared of the dark understand something fundamental about the universe. Light belongs to God. It is associated with what is good. God is light. And he is such an embodiment of light that he can be called the father of it. Verse 17 calls God the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is a light that burns brighter than the sun and he has no sunspots. That's what this verse is telling us here. There's no shadow in him. There's no changing or wobbling in him. There is, you can look and 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 you will find no fault in God. Only light, only purity. Can you imagine if someone wrote a book this big about you? There wouldn't be much for me good in it. I don't want anyone to read the entire book of my life. And God has revealed himself in Jesus and the revelation of God is that he is good, brothers and sisters, and he is holy. And all his ways and all his acts are only ever good and holy. And because God is good and perfect, all his gifts are too. Verse 17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I love this because it makes me ask if I have good things in my life. Do you have good things in your life? Do you enjoy good health right now? Apparently, that is a gift from God. Do you have a loving family? Apparently, that is a gift from God. Are you going to go out for Mother's Day brunch after church or lunch after church, get some burgers, whatever, I mean, I don't know, whatever you're into, some chocolate-covered strawberries? That is a gift from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. It's not just he closes his eyes and just indiscriminately casts gifts out and whoever catches them gets them. He gives gifts. These are personal. These are for you. God's gifts are given generously. Uh, earlier, we're told in verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to everyone without reproach and it will be given to him. You were told here that God extends gener generosity to everyone, and that includes you. So if you're under a trial right now, and you are fumbling, you are messing up, you are giving into temptation, and you are giving into the temptation that, that you yourself are being uh, enticed with, recognize that God is still giving you good gifts, whether you're in Christ or not. God is so good to us. He extends our lives. He gives us good things. He gives us pleasure. He gives us comfort. And all these gifts are designed by the Father of lights to cause us to turn to him and believe that he is good. To turn from our sin and trust in him. That's what these gifts are for. And there's a special word in here for us Christians. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. The point is, since God is good and holy, shouldn't his children be as well? We are told that we are sons and daughters of God. And if God is good and holy, we ought to be as well. 
It says here in verse 18 that God brought us forth by the word of truth. We were conceived, if you will, through the word of truth. That's Jesus. Jesus is the word of truth, revealed in Scripture, believed through the Holy Spirit. We have been born again, John 3 language, anybody? We have been born again, remade from the ground up. We are being renewed, being transformed into the image of God more fully. Brothers and sisters, God is going to remake the whole universe. That's his plan, and he's chosen to start with us. The renovation begins here. And while the world is decaying, we are being made new. While our bodies are growing older, our minds are growing dim. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So Christian, do not be disheartened by the decay that you see in the world around you. The world is headed in a very different direction than you are headed because you are the first fruits of God's creation, the first taste of what's to come, the renovation in your heart, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is proof to the world that God is indeed working and making all things new. There's so much more we could draw from this text that we could apply to our lives this week. And so, man, it's going to be up to you in small groups this week to really draw out the applications from this text. I'd encourage you just to spend time looking at this, soaking in this text, thinking of the blessings God's given you, thinking of the ways that God uses trials for good, thinking of the ways that God is only ever good, even when we are only ever not. But before we close, I do want to draw out four applications this morning, and then, and then we'll be done. Four thoughts this morning. Number one, every good thing in your life that's you in here, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, whether you're old or whether you're young, every good thing in your life is a personalized, specially gift-wrapped gift from God to you. And on brief reflection, if you're struggling to make a list of God's gifts, my encouragement to you this week is to seek to grow in thankfulness. You know who's really good at this? You know who's good at making a habit of thanking God for ordinary things? You know who's good at pointing out ordinary things? Children. Children are so good at this. They are, the world is new to them. They see things and are blown away by things that we don't care about. I've seen squirrels my whole life, and frankly, they're kind of a nuisance. But you would think that Jude is like, like a kid at a chocolate factory when he sees squirrels. He's just like booking it after everyone, face planning after every single squirrel. Like, this thing is amazing. <laughs> this good gift scurrying around in my backyard. Kids are very good at this. The world is new. So, so kids, my challenge to you this week is for you to find as many of God's gifts in your life as you can. And then I want you to tell your parents about them. Okay? Can you all do that for me? Now, let me tell you. Here's how you're going to know that a gift is from God. If it's good, it's from God. Okay? See how many gifts from God you can find this week. Number two, 
Christians, while, while good works by no means earn us favor with God, obedience through faith is always rewarded. Christians are born-again people. Our new nature is designed for good works. And what you bring forth outwardly is what you are inwardly. And if you're living in the world just like the world, odds are what's in them is also in you. It's imperative that if we live in Christ, if we claim Christ, that we live in him, that we live according to his power, cast on him, asking him for help, um, clutching him for dear life, repenting every day of our old prideful way of living and believing in him only. If we claim that we are children of God, who only brings forth things that are good and perfect, and we do not follow him and submit our lives to him and give our sinful desires to him, what does that say to the world about who God is? We, brothers and sisters, are a witness to all creation. Listen back through the last couple sermons to hear about that. We are witnesses not just to things that we can see, but the things that we can't see. We are witnesses to the spiritual realm. Angels are watching this church. Demons are watching this church. Satan is watching this church. And brothers and sisters, the world is watching Christ's church. What are they seeing? Are they seeing that God is a God whose every gift is good and perfect? God is remaking the world and he is starting with us. We must never grow content with our old way of life. We can't have one foot in and one foot out, a half-hearted faith. We've got to have faith to believe that an all-in faith is worth it, that what God promises us is better than chasing what's down the rabbit hole. Number three, and this is the hard truth this morning, when we sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We must take ownership, according to this text, I believe, of how we respond to trials. Is your family getting on your nerves? Lashing out, blowing up is not justified. Are you frustrated by your frenetic pace of life, the burdens that your boss puts on you, the burdens that having a growing family is putting on you? Getting frustrated is not justified. How you respond is totally your responsibility. And this is a hard reality check. What you are going through matters to God. These things are challenging. These trials are real. God doesn't look at them and go, yeah, you've never experienced anything. I've been on a cross. No, no, no. God looks at our trials, recognizes them at trials, and he calls us to the table to agree with him that when we are tempted, we are just enticed by what's already in our hearts. So when you blow up, when you harbor bitterness, when you lose it, when you do that whole passive-aggressive thing, when you lust, when you cheat, when you covet, no one shares responsibility for your sin. And before the judgment seat of God, our sin will rest squarely on our own shoulders. Unless any of us are in here in danger of leaving this morning feeling good about ourselves, here's one more word. Let me add this. This goes the other way too. 
if you have caused someone to sin, if you have provoked someone to do what is evil, you are held responsible for your actions as well. If you were a sibling, kids, listen to me. This is me too. I I have seven siblings, all right? I'm preaching this to myself. If you are a sibling who has provoked a sibling to sin, if you are a spouse who has provoked your spouse to sin, if you are a leader who has enticed a follower into sin, you are accountable for your sin as well. Although Adam and Eve were held fully responsible for their actions in the Garden of Eden for disobeying God, Satan was punished with an even worse punishment than they were. Scripture says that if anyone causes a Christian to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and to be thrown into the sea. Whichever side of the equation we're on this morning, whether we've been provoked to sin or whether we are provoking others to sin, whether we are in the midst of trials or we ourselves are being a trial for someone else, we are responsible. We cannot point fingers and say it is their fault. And God forbid, we cannot point fingers and say this is God's fault. We have to admit our own desires lead us into sin, and sin always grows up into one big terrifying thing, and that is death. Our desires left unchecked will grow into sin. Our sins without someone coming in and slaying them will slay us, which leads to my final thought this morning. If you're in here this morning and you are in the midst of a trial and you are realizing, I am botching this. I am not responding with steadfastness. I am not obeying Jesus. This is me all the way. If you feel the weight of conviction, let me say this. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. The most good and the most perfect gift that ever came down from the Father of lights was his own son, Jesus Christ. While I, brothers and sisters, botch the opportunities God gives me to grow in steadfastness, to grow in faith, when trials come, Jesus endured every trial, the worst temptation that any of us could ever face, and yet he had no sin. He lived our life as it was designed to be lived, one of service, one of sacrifice, one of steadfastness under trials. Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, obey the commands. No one's done that except for Jesus Christ. He alone obeyed every command God gave him, endured every trial that was sent his way, and yet without sin. And Scripture tells us earlier in verse 12 that the man who endures steadfast, uh, trial steadfastly is blessed. Under that definition, Jesus should have been the most blessed man that ever lived. He should have received a crown of life, and yet he received a crown of death, a crown of thorns worn on our behalf. Because the life that he lived was lived on our behalf. The perfect way, the perfect peace and patience and gentleness and kindness in which he responded to every trial covers our sins if we only believe. So if you're a believer in here this morning, my encouragement for you is to recognize that because of the gospel, you have access full and free to God even when you don't respond well to trials. 
Even when your faith is weak, you have full, complete, never-ending access to God. Repent and believe that Jesus' blood is on you. It covers you. And if you are not yet a believer, I would pray that you would know that this good news is for you. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep you're in it right now, Jesus stands willing and ready to save you. If you would only believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins. Brothers and sisters, trials do come. But even in the midst of those trials, no matter how we respond, God is always good. Even when we can't see it, we can trust him and take him at his word that he is always good. And if you're in Christ, the promise for you is that every trial that God sends your way is for good. We can always turn and we can always trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for every good and perfect gift in our life. I know that I, I, I could not come close to counting the innumerable gifts that I have each day. And I know because of your word, because of faith given as a gift, that your son is the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive. I pray that even this morning, Lord, that you would convict our hearts of sin, convict us of where we've shifted the blame even onto you. Oh God, thank you that you do not hold those things against us if we were in Christ. Every bit of blame shifting, every bit of pride and evil in our life has been paid for on the cross by Jesus for us. And I pray that we would have conviction through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to believe that Jesus has fully paid the price, that he is a good gift, that no matter the trials that we go through, we can trust him and keep following him. It is better to suffer with Christ than to have comfort without him. Help our hearts to believe, even this morning. In Christ's name, amen.